Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Today on the Matt Wall Show, last night we were finally treated to the grotesque spectacle of the man, Leah Thomas, competing against the women in the NCAA championships, which he won handily, of course. Also, we'll talk about that. Also, misinformation transforms into information once again as the New York Times finally confirms that the Hunter Biden laptop story was true, of course. Plus, Nancy Pelosi is the latest liberal to try to defeat Putin with a poem. We'll see if she succeeded. And a few Republicans vote against a bill leveling more sanctions on Russia. Is it because they're stooges of Putin or might there be another reason? And in our daily cancellation, a film critic is accused of racism for failing to enjoy a cartoon about an Asian girl. Did he bow to the mob and apologize? I think you already know, but we'll find out all of that and more today on The Matt Wall Show. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've probably heard me talk about my Helix mattress. Um, Helix has left the bedroom, though, and now they've started making sofas. The mattresses are amazing. You know the sofas are going to be great, too. They just launched a new company called Allform, and they're already making the best sofas we've ever seen. So what makes an Allform sofa really cool? Well, for starters, it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, the sofa color, the color of the legs, sofa size, and shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your home. All form sofas are also delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping. You know, in the past, if you wanted to order a sofa, it would take weeks or even months to arrive, and you would need someone to come and assemble it in your home. All form takes just three to seven days to arrive in the mail, and you can assemble it yourself in a few minutes. No tools needed. And if getting a sofa without trying it in the store sounds a little bit risky, you don't need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. To find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash Walsh. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Walsh. The Leah Thomas story has reached its conclusion, for now anyway. Uh, in the not-too-distant future, we'll start hearing, I'm sure, about Leah Thomas, the Olympian, crushing his female competitors on the global stage. But as for his college career, it concluded at the NCAA Women's Swimming Championship last night. Thomas competed in the 500-yard freestyle race. We can't really use the word compete or race. It was not a sporting event so much as a masquerade, a minstrel show. Thomas was wearing his woman face, ever bit as degrading and appropriative as blackface. Much like a professional wrestling match, the conclusion of this fake contest was decided ahead of time. Just a matter of, you know, inaugurating the predetermined winner. And that happened uh, four minutes and 33 seconds later when Thomas finished in a comfortable first place, setting a program record in the process. Now, I wish I could say that the room fell quiet or that uh, booze rained down upon Thomas when he completed the process of stealing the gold medal. 
That's what should have happened, but that's not what happened. The crowd cheered while the announcers, of course, made sure to, as always, respect his pronouns. Listen. She's having a great race here, and she's going to get second. That will give her a lot of confidence. Remember, she's just a freshman. Leah Thomas pulling away over the final 150 meters. Had to work for it. She was pushed over the first 350 meters. Thomas wins the NCAA championship. Ended up very close for second with Wyatt taking it ahead of a late charge from Erica Sullivan in third. Top two, Thomas on the right. Wyant scoring an important 17 points for Virginia. Yeah, there's some uh, talk online, some of these videos circulating, and people are comforting themselves by saying, well, listen to the crowd. They're all, they're all silent and not cheering for, for Thomas. Also, you know, there's some video of the, um, the ceremony, the medal ceremony, where they're standing on the podium. And that's the claim anyway, is that, uh, well, you can really notice how the crowd is more quiet for Thomas. Maybe I'm deaf or something, but that's that's not what I hear. All these videos, it seems to me, you can you can hear a, sm- a very small smattering of booze, maybe two or three people, uh, but for the most part, seems to me that the crowd is clapping along. By the way, Emma Wyant, as you heard there, was second place, so she's really first place. The actual winner of the match was Emma Wyant, um, who um, University of Virginia, and she's the winner, you know, in reality. But in this fake world here. Leah Thomas is the winner. And afterwards, ESPN interviewed the pseudo-winner, Thomas. The interview is only interesting because the person conducting it is an actual woman. If the full absurdity of this situation hadn't yet sunken in for you, the contrast of Thomas in his one-piece bathing suit standing next to an actual female should really do the trick. Watch. Leah, how did that performance measure up to your expectations coming into this meet tonight? I... I didn't have a whole lot of expectations for this meet. I was just happy to be here trying to race and compete as best as I could. You've undoubtedly been under the spotlight over the past few months. How have you been dealing with that and reasoning with everything? I try to ignore it as much as I can. I try to focus on my swimming, uh, what I need to do to get ready for my races, and just try to block out everything else. What did that race mean to you? It means the world to, to be here, be with two of my best friends and teammates, and be able to compete. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you so much. Now, not that it makes a difference, really, but you, you can't help but see a certain added arrogance in the fact that Thomas isn't even making any effort at all to sound or appear womanly. He's, he's simply just a man who looks and sounds exactly like a man standing there, accepted as a woman because he declared himself to be so. No additional steps required. Yeah, you know, I think I've, I've made the comparison before. It really, it really reminds me of that scene in The Office when, um, when Michael Scott uh, realizes he doesn't have any money and he's told that he needs to declare bankruptcy. And so he just walks outside of his office and goes, I declare bankruptcy. And of course, he has to, they have to explain to him. It's like, that's not, you can't just say it. That's, that, that's not how it works. Um, and that's sort of what, how it works for Leah Thomas. He's just, I declare I'm a woman. Well, okay, you're a woman then. Now, I hesitate to make that point only because I don't want to give the impression that the added steps of hormones, surgery, whatever, actually bring a man any closer to being a woman. 
Uh, they don't. But even so, the lack of effort here just underscores the absurdity. Meanwhile, outside, a group of protesters were on the scene to represent sanity and common sense and basic moral decency. One of them was a female swimmer with a say no to males competing against females sticker on her sweater. And she was not afraid to call this what it is. There were a few others as well that were interviewed. So credit where it's due. There have not been nearly enough female athletes speaking out against this. But here were two female athletes who would. Uh, and, and this is someone with the courage to, to speak out and put, put her name and face on it as well. All the more reason to listen to what she has to say. Here it is. You're a Virginia Tech swimmer. What did you think about Leah Thomas competing today as a swimmer in this competition? Um, what are you feeling? What are other athletes feeling? It's a common conception that we are all very disappointed and frustrated with someone who is, has capabilities more than us women have to be able to compete at this level and take opportunities away from other women. Like I have a teammate who did not make finals today because she was just bumped out of finals. And it's heartbreaking to see someone who went through puberty as a male and has the body of a male be able to absolutely blow away the competition and you go into it with a mindset that you are you don't have a chance if that makes sense like it's hard to compete against someone with the aerobic capacity the muscle development the body of a man it, it's hard it's hard to think about it like that and staying positive I bet for other swimmers who are in that uh he is probably overwhelming I, I'm not sure I can't speak for them but it, it's disappointing to see and frustrating definitely and you said that one of your teammates was crying today because she didn't make the finals. Uh, you said that she was 17th yes. and there were 16 spots. Yes. So uh, Leah Thomas took one of those spots. Uh, talk to us about what your teammate uh, was going through and, and that experience. She was very emotional and it's hard to see because it's her last NCAAs. And um, she really loves that race. And it was just heartbreaking to see that she put all her effort into it today. And when the best time that she's went in a morning session before and still not make it back. It, it, it's hard to see someone who works every day, every night, still not be able to compete against someone like that. Now, there is no counter-argument to what that woman had to say, but it shows you the power the left wields in our culture that they have been able to bring this kind of madness to fruition without having to provide any arguments in favor of it. I mean, talk about not making an effort. They barely even attempt to justify any of this. Why should males be allowed to compete against females? Well, uh, the left's answer is, in essence, because we said so. Anytime they try to go beyond that, try to mount an actual defense of the practice, it quickly devolves into incoherence and gibberish. For example, the Washington Post yesterday published a defense of Leah Thomas written by sports columnist Sally Jenkins. And uh, this is what she came up with. At the start of, start of the article, first paragraph, she says, Hate to tell you, but in a way, everyone is trans. As writer T. Cooper observed, all of us in life's competitive arena are on the way to becoming someone profoundly different than we were. And keeping score is just a way to track the arc of a person from youth to prime to past it. If you subtract the aim of becomingness from competition just because you're afraid of a Leah Thomas and make it strictly about the chance to win a prize, then you might as well go back to an amusement park and shoot a squirt gun at a clown face because it will have about as much meaning. Now, we're barely through the first paragraph, and already Jenkins has had to resort to abstract philosophical pablum about the aim of becomingness. One side has a simple, logical, straight-to-the-point argument. Males are not females and can never be females. They're different. Like, that's the argument, right? The other side has the aim of becomingness. So Jenkins has no argument, nothing to offer, nothing to say. 
So instead, she'll try to convince you to be as confused as she is. And hopefully along the way, she'll also convince you that, that she's smart because she uses phrases like the aim of becoming this. But, um, but you know, you don't have to be a very smart person to realize that this is something that stupid people do. When they don't have anything to say, they try to hide behind nonsense because they're stupid. She continues, the debate over whether Thomas, a transgender collegiate swimmer, has some sort of immutable biological edge over the field in this week's NCAA Women's Swimming Championships will swamp whatever she does in the water. We look to facts to rescue us when a subject becomes heated, but here the science remains unsettled. No one arguing the issue really wants to admit it. When is the last time you heard a doctor or any other expert say the words, I don't know, but we don't know? Therefore, to exclude trans athletes from elite competition out of our own constricting fears and uncertainty is wrong, harmfully so. The science remains unsettled, she says. No, her brain is unsettled. At least it isn't settled anywhere in her head. Okay, her brain is off vacationing in Fiji, and she's writing her columns without it, obviously. No, there's nothing unsettled here. In fact, the biological distinction between male and female is just about the most settled scientific fact in existence. This is settled. Thomas is not a female and will never be one. He's a man, a male. XY chromosomes, a male anatomy, as the women who've seen him in the locker room have attested. Male gametes. And there's a lot more to that. There's a lot more to being a male than just that. The, the physical difference between men and women are not confined to the reproductive system. They can be found in every bodily system. Leah Thomas, like any male, is male right down to his bones, down to his cells, down to his DNA. As I explained in my speech at Georgia Tech earlier in the week, when Thomas dies and is buried beneath a giant monument celebrating him as history's greatest female athlete, 100 years hence, he could be excavated and his bones analyzed, and scientists will be very shocked to discover that the greatest female athlete is a male because his bones will attest to the biological reality. They won't declare his pronouns or affirm his self-perception because there will be no self. The self is gone, but the man remains. It also just so happens that many of these biological differences give him a distinct advantage over women in sports, especially swimming. Maybe we could start with height. He is over six feet tall. I think six one at least, six two. Looks even taller than that. Do you know how many women in America are just over six feet, let alone six one, six two? It's like 0.5% of women are that tall. It's, it's almost, almost no women. <laughs> almost no women in the world are as tall as, as Leah Thomas. And he's not all that tall for a man. He's a, a little bit above average for a man. So he's got that going for him. When he was in the pool, he was swimming against people with 20% less muscle mass on average, 40% less upper body strength, 33% less lower body strength, smaller fast twitch muscle fiber, smaller lungs, smaller heart, shorter legs, more estrogen, less testosterone, a lower capacity to produce oxygen when they exert themselves. The list goes on and on and on and on and on some more. The side of sanity, the side opposite Leah Thomas and Sally Jenkins, could not be more firmly planted in reality, could not be more vindicated by the evidence. Well, on second thought, that's not true. Because the more we learn about the body, the more we discover differences between men and women, so that, in fact, with each passing day, our side is more and more vindicated by the evidence. Every day you think we couldn't be more vindicated, and then, and, and then more discoveries only vindicated more. We just keep adding evidence to our plate, while the other side makes do with the aim of becomingness. And yet that side is currently winning. Why? Well, because they own the culture, they own the institutions. Also because on this particular issue, our side waited too long to get engaged. I mean, on this issue and like every other issue, but especially this one. Now, I was fighting gender ideology eight years ago when there was only a handful of us on the right who cared about it. 
And most other conservatives were still offering breezy assurances that the whole thing is a sideshow, a fad, nothing to worry about. You really want to die on this hill, they used to ask me? Some of them still do. The answer was and is still yes. I've been on this hill. I'm not leaving it. In fact, I would literally die in a physical sense before abandoning this, this fundamental fact of reality. I'd rather be dead than claim that I don't recognize it, than go around prattling off nonsense because that's what's being demanded of me. Like rather than debase myself that way, I would rather, I'd rather have a bullet in the head. That's how important it is to me. But many conservatives, they abandoned the Hill back at the first sign of serious pushback, back when Jenner was being crowned woman of the year. Others never took the Hill to begin with. And now many of them are starting to realize, as some of us have been saying for a decade, that this Hill is the Hill. It's the central battleground of the culture war. It took so long for the right to clue in that now the battle for the Hill is an uphill battle. They got to climb up the Hill first so they can defend it. A lot, some of us have been up here like outnumbered for a long time, and now we got all these other people at the base of the hill. Say, all right, I'll, I guess I'll join you. Eight years later, but that doesn't mean it isn't winnable. I believe we can actually win this. We can. We can defeat gender ideology. I really believe that. I'm not a. I'm not an optimist. You know that. But I think this is one we can win. We're we're we're, we're late to the game. A lot of us are anyway. But we're not so late that we can't win it. But it will require focus and a united front and also moral courage. All things that we've been lacking as a movement, at least in recent history. If we can rediscover those qualities or discover them to begin with, this is a fight we can win. And we must. Now let's get to our five headlines. Constant Contact, a digital marketing platform that helps small businesses and nonprofits of all sizes build, grow, and succeed uh, with email marketing, contact management, industry-leading list growth tools, social media ads, and more. Constant Contact helps small businesses connect with customers, find new ones, and sell online, all from one easy-to-use platform. They've been trusted by millions of businesses to help improve their marketing with a 97% deliverability rate, deliverability rate, there you go, you can rest assured that your customers and potential customers are getting the right message at the right time. With a simple interface, Constant Contact's easy-to-use platform makes content contact management easier than ever. Their list growth tools help you find a bigger audience, fast, leading generation landing pages. Um, text to join and social media ads are proven to grow your list and drive engagement with your brand. With thousands of integrations, you can sync Constant Contact's tools with the tools you're already using. Powerful automation tools help you send the right message to the right person at the right time, every time. To start your free digital marketing trial today, visit constantcontact.com. Yesterday was fun, by the way. I didn't even mention Happy St. Patrick's Day and, and me as a, as a man of Irish descent. How could I not mention it? Well, I'll tell you why. Because, because this, is, this is my, okay, this is our people. This is our holiday. And I'm tired of our identity being appropriated in this way. Um, but I got home and, you know, my wife wanted to have some St. Patty's Day uh, fun and she wanted to do, um, you know, arts and crafts time with the kids, which I was required to be present for. And um, they're all making like cut out three leaf clovers and, you know, drawing leprechauns and whatever. So so I said, OK, I'll join. And um, I drew a leprechaun and uh, which which I'll show you here. This is the leprechaun I, I drew. And my wife was so horrified by she put it on Twitter. But that's it right there. 
So I just decided to draw an evil leprechaun holding a dagger, or maybe that's an ice pick, I don't know, with blood and scars all over his face and sharp teeth. And then my boys thought that that was the coolest thing ever. So then the whole arts and crafts time took a turn and they're all drawing these evil, disturbing leprechauns and all this, all this uh, like demonic St. Patrick's Day imagery. And my wife was really annoyed and uh, it was great. She's like, I just wanted to have a nice arts and crafts time. And this is what you had to do. Well, what, did you, what did you think was going to happen when you asked me to take part in something like this? By the way, Summer, can we put that image back up there again? I don't know why you would just go away from it so quickly. This, this, is, this is fine art. Can we, first of all, I think we need to admire my artistic ability to begin with. Because I think that that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm a, the greatest artist in the world or anything like that. But I think I'm in the top 100 anyway. But I also think that um, there, there are some saying that, that the, the, my evil leprechaun looks a little bit like Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, which I can kind of see that. And there are, there are other people wondering if I will sell that image as an NFT, which is not a bad idea as soon as I figure out what an NFT is. All right, let's go to this, if I can find it. Okay, from the New York Post, it says, a comprehensive report about the ongoing federal probe into Hunter Biden's tax filings published by the New York Times on Wednesday confirmed the existence of the First Son's infamous laptop. In October 2020, the Post exclusively reported on the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop that he ditched at a Delaware repair shop in April 2019. Um, The laptop's hard drive contained a trove of emails, text messages, photos, and financial documents between Hunter Biden. We never did, the one thing we never, I don't think we ever figured out, is who who could be so stupid as to just leave your laptop at a compare at a repair shop and never come back for it? Who does that? How do you forget about a laptop? Um, who's dumb? Well, Hunter Biden is stupid enough for that, so I guess we did answer that question. Um, and the emails detailing how the president's son used political leverage in his overseas business dealings. The repair owner, uh, repair shop owner, reported the laptop to the FBI, which seized the device and its hard drive. Um, The laptop confirmation was included in the Times report that also revealed how Hunter Biden paid off a tax liability of over a million dollars a year after he announced he was under investigation for defrauding the IRS. So this is something that the the New York Times, they didn't didn't try to make it into a big deal. It's not like it was a big headline. Hey, all of us on the left were wrong about this. Of course, they didn't do that, but they they just kind of squeezed it in and tried to move past it in an article. Oh, yeah, by the way, so it turns out that was right. And of course, this was, I don't have to remind you, this was at the time when this story was reported, it was misinformation, it was disinformation, mis- and disinformation. This was all, this was all a plot by, by Putin and by Russia. And not only that, and of course, you're, you're a, you were a moron and a conspiracy theorist if you would ever believe you know, that Hunter Biden could have material like this on his laptop. Um, and, and not only that, but of course, if you weren't allowed to talk about this on social media or you would be banned. You know, the New York Post, a media outlet suspended on Twitter for publishing a news article. First time that's ever happened in the history of social media. It hasn't happened since then. You weren't allowed to talk about it. Now, you know, when we talk about... Um, rigging the election and voter fraud and all that. Here's one example of election rigging 
that there's there's no there's no dispute. You know, this is this is right out in the open. This is a form of rigging the election. When you have sensitive information, damning information about Joe Biden's family and Joe Biden himself and his son. And there is a conspiracy, yes, by the big tech companies and by the media to erase this stuff from existence. They're not going to let you publish it. They're not going to let you talk about it. It's, it's not just that they've got their competing narratives saying that it's all false. It's like you're not allowed to post it or they will take it down. And this was during the campaign. And why were they doing this? Well, obviously, just because it would be harmful to Joe Biden, potentially. And they were terrified. They, they, the idea of having another email scandal in the general election that partially results in uh, Donald Trump getting elected again, they, they couldn't handle that. They, they couldn't let it happen this time. They let it happen the first time. They weren't going to let it happen again. So was the election rigged? Yeah, right there. We, we don't really have to go beyond that. And that's, that's serious rigging there when you've got the most powerful institutions in the country that are conspiring to make sure that, va- that true, true information about Joe Biden's family is not allowed to be shared because it will be harmful to Joe Biden's election chances. All right, meanwhile, elsewhere in the Democrat Party, um, Nancy Pelosi yesterday made a somewhat bizarre announcement earlier in the day where she was at a press conference and she said that, uh, oh, by the way, a little bit later, I'll be reading a poem written by Bono about Putin. And there was never, there was never any other explanation as far as I know. It's like, wh- why? Who? Why is Bono sending Nancy Pelosi poems? Is there something going on between those two we need to know about? And uh, what's happening exactly? None of that's explained. But then a little bit later, Nancy Pelosi gets up, and this is all documented by C-SPAN. She gets up in front of uh, you know the, the 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 select crowd and reads this poem that Bono wrote about Putin, um, hoping that this would cancel World War III. Let's find out if it was successful. Before I introduce them, I want to. I got this message this morning from Bono. And, and most of us, we're always, whether we're in Ireland or here, or whatever it is, Abano has been a very Irish part of our lives. And he said this. He said, Oh, St. Patrick, he drove out the snakes with his prayers, but that's not all it, t- that's not all it takes. For the smoke symbolizes an evil that arises and hides in your heart as it breaks. And the evil from, risen from friends, from the darkness that lives in some men, but in sorrow and fear, that's when saints can appear to drive out those old snakes once again. And they struggle for us to be free from the psycho in this human family. Ireland's sorrow and pain is now the Ukraine, and St. Patrick's name is now Zelensky. <laughs> well, that did it. World War III is canceled. The war's over. From what I understand, Putin packed up, went, took, took, well, sent all the troops home, and that was it. That was the end of it. Um, that poem. I mean, first of all, Nancy Pelosi. Is, that, that was a that was a terrible. I don't know if we can blame. I don't know who to blame primarily for this. Do we blame Bono or do we blame Nancy Pelosi? Because 
It's a terrible rendition. She did an awful job. I mean, you, Bono sent you a poem for some reason, and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna recite it on camera. Did you not practice it ahead of time a little bit? Try to do Bono some favors here, make it sound a little bit better. But so it was a terrible rendition. The poem itself was 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 awful. Uh, and 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 in the in the poem, uh, Zelensky is now a saint, and he's a Saint Patrick. Specifically. So, between the song we played yesterday for you and this poem, as, as on this show, we were just assaulting your eardrums with the cringiest material imaginable. And it's going to get worse from here, by the way. i got to tell you. we got a few more things to play in a second. And you're going to really hate me by the end of it. Um, but between those two things, Zelensky is Superman, Jesus Christ, a saint, a man who's going to save the world, and St. Patrick's. St. Patrick. My God. We're just losing our minds. We're losing our minds. Now this, so, so but, the, but the real question we have, I think, and I'm sure you thought this when you're listening to that, which poem was better? Was it this one? Was it Bono's poem for Putin? Or was it the, whatever, that CW actress who wrote the poem for Putin about how if she was Putin's mother? And if you don't remember that poem, then let's listen to it again. Dear President Vladimir Putin, I'm so sorry that I was not your mother. If I was your mother, you would have been so loved, held in the arms of joyous light. Never would the story's plight, the world unfurled before our eyes, a pure demise of nations sitting peaceful under a night sky. If I was your mother, the world would have been warm, so much laughter and joy and nothing would harm. I can't imagine the stain, the soul-stealing pain that the little boy you must have seen and believed. But I can't and the do it formulation of right. thought quickly told That's it. I can't do it. I can't do it. That one's worse. That one is still, that one is still worse. I mean, listen, that's, a, that's an achievement in its own right. It's hard to out-cringe Bono. You know, Bono is kind of like, is and has been forever cringe made manifest the cringe became man and it was bono um so it's it's hard it's and given the the field you're playing on here cringy poetry that's bono's deal that's what he does and somehow that chick was able to outdo him so you gotta some some respect there and we're just going to Gloss right over the fact that Pelosi said that Bono is a very Irish part of our lives. What? What does that mean? This is what happens when we have a bunch of 97-year-olds running the the world at a moment like this. All right. Um, We do have one more extremely cringy piece of uh, of audio and and video to play for you. But we got to break it up a little bit, so we'll we'll save that. I I can't. I'm afraid if people are listening to this in the car right now while you're driving, uh, I don't want to be responsible for people, you know, steering their cars off of bridges and so 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 forth. So we're, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll break it up. One other story, and then we'll get back to the cringe. Um, here's the article from Insider. It says, if I can find it, the House of Representatives passed a bill on Thursday to suspend normal trade relations with both Russia and Belarus amid the war in Ukraine. The suspending the suspending normal trade relations with Russia and Belarus Act which passed by a 42, uh, 424 to 8 margin, allows President Joe Biden to increase tariffs on products coming from the two countries and requires the U.S. Trade Representative to uh, seek suspension of Russia's participation in the World Trade Organization. Um, but there were 
eight members of Congress who voted against it. And of course, they're being condemned by the media and by the left, even by people on the right as being stooges for Putin and all the rest of it. They're secret Russian agents, I guess not so secret. Well, Thomas Massey, as you know, I believe one of the very few good ones left in Congress, he, uh, and you can, you can almost always rely on him to, uh, to actually be the adult in the room in Congress. Biden was supposed to be the adult in the room. Turns out, no, he's just, he's the, he's the, uh, the veg, vegetable in the room. He's, a, he's the head of, head of lettuce in the room. Thomas Massey is the actual adult in the room. And he was with this as well. He explained why he voted against the bill on, on his Twitter account. He says, this was slipped into the Russian sanctions bill on pages 19, 20, 21. It gives the president broad authority to sanction virtually anyone anywhere in the world, whether they're connected to Russia or not. Interventionists at the State Department are doing their happy dance now. Uh, and then he has the actual... He comes with the receipts, as the kids would say. It says, um, reading from it, uh, the president may impose the sanctions described in subsection B with respect to any foreign person the president determines based on credible information. Uh, so he can impose these sanctions based on against anyone based on credible information. Um, and then actually the section is quite long, so we can't read the entire thing. But you can go and read it for yourself on Thomas Massey's uh, Twitter account. So this is, this is a bill that, again, would give the president the authority not just to issue these sanctions against Russia, but to sanction anybody. And this is what always happens. This is why um, neocons exist. This, this, in fact, is why there's so much enthusiasm for war on both sides of the aisle. If you didn't know any better, if you're a more naive sort of person, and uh, you, you got to look at the political scene in America and you saw how divided everything is and how, you know, we're arguing about everything. We can't agree on anything. And you might think that a subject like war would certainly be the most divisive of all of them, given what we're talking about and how serious it is. Uh, but that's not the case. You've got two sides that seemingly, seemingly can't agree on anything. But when it comes to war... They're on the same page. And war and daylight savings are the two things on the same page. And that should make you pretty suspicious. But then you realize, well, why do they, they like war so much? Because war is a jobs program, for one thing, for the government. It means more money for the government. It's a fundraising program for the government. And most of all, it means it's an opportunity for them to claim more power for themselves. This always happens in any war. That's why the, through the course of the last 20 years and all the pointless wars we've been fighting, uh, we also find that especially the executive branch during that time has become ever more powerful. Because you can always hide behind the war and the conflict to seize more power for yourself, and that's what they're doing here. And there were eight people in Congress who noticed it and had the, uh, the gumption to stand against it. All right, back to the cringe. Stacey Abrams appeared on an episode of Star Trek um, Star Trek is apparently still on the air. I don't know. I don't know where where it's being uh, aired or what channel it's on. But Star Trek, there's still some sort of series of Star Trek out there. And um, I haven't watched any Star Trek at all. But of course, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all to to, to find out from this clip that Star Trek is massively uber woke. Of course, it is. And in this episode, they actually had Stacey Abrams 
guest starring as president of the United Earth. Now, we know Stacey Abrams um, thinks that she's the actual governor of Georgia. She thinks she should be president. Uh, There's a lot of hype behind her. Nobody can really figure out why. No one's been able to figure out why Stacey Abrams is a thing. What, what, What exactly is compelling about her? There's nothing interesting about her. Her resume is not impressive. She's not even a charismatic person. When we know Barack Obama uh, had almost no resume to speak of before becoming president, but at the very least, he was a pretty good public speaker and he had charisma. And so that's what carried him to the White House. Uh, uh, Stacey Abrams doesn't have any of that. But she, she believes that she should, uh, she should run Georgia, really run the, the, the country. And if she can't do it in reality, then she'll do it on Star Trek. So let's watch this scene. We greet the president of United Earth. Madam President. Madam President. Welcome. I am so pleased that you've come. We are eager to begin diplomatic discussions. Nothing to discuss. United Earth is ready right now to rejoin the Federation. And nothing could make me happier than to say those words. Thank you. Thank you all. What you have accomplished here. We were lucky to have each other, ma'am. We couldn't have succeeded otherwise. General, I'm glad to see you've recovered. Yes, I haven't had that close a call in quite a while. I would consider it a personal favor if that were your last close call. I'm ever at your service, Madam President. Captain, may I have a word? Of course. Uh, I'm, you know, this is the future. Why is there not a polyamorous trans furry as the United President of the United World? That's my question. She, uh, Stacey Abrams is as good. Am I even on, am I in, in frame right now for the camera? Just barely. Okay, I'm being told in my ear. We'll, we'll just stay here. Uh, Stacey Abrams is as good an actress as she is a politician. I'm just watching that. I, I, it's it, to me, it's the greatest mystery in life right now. Is why, like, I get it. For, I know you'll say, well, right, the left has chosen her as to be their thing because she's a black female. Okay, I understand that part of it, but there, like, literally any other black female in the country would at least be slightly more impressive than than Stacey Abrams. Well, you could point, you could pick out anybody at random. She's not charismatic. She's not a good public speaker. She has nothing to say, obviously. Um, she's not like physically appealing. She's not, she's not an, an attractive person. She doesn't have that going for her either. She's just got nothing. And they've just they've, they've settled on her and they say, no, it's going to be Stacey Abrams. It's going to be her because we insist. All right. I want to mention this briefly from The Sun uh, because I always, you know, I always like these space stories. We, we went from a the fictional space to reality here, or what may soon be reality. Elon Musk uh, from the Sun says Elon Musk, is, Elon Musk expects to see another giant leap for mankind, not just in this lifetime, lifetime, but in this decade. He says within seven years, he expects that we'll be landing on Mars. The SpaceX Starship, a 400-foot reusable rocket equipped with one of the most powerful engines ever built, will be the vessel that brings humans to the red planet. Since 2020, iterations of the Starship have completed four test launches and landings reaching heights of over 10 kilometers on each trip. 
Plans to take a crewed mission on a trip around the moon in the Starship are slated for 2023. And uh, anyway, now he's talking about 20, you know, within, within before 2030 is when he expects that we're actually going to be landing on Mars. And you know how I feel about this. I mean, it's, yes, I, I would never want to go to Mars. Mars is like whatever it is, 500 degrees below uh, zero, and there's these massive storms that rage for months on end, and it's, there's you know it, there's no atmosphere, oxygen. It's just it's a death trap of a planet, and you're traveling millions of miles to get to it. So it's not something that I would ever want to do, and it's hard for me to see in a practical way how Mars could ever be a good substitute for Earth. I know people are talking about well, if we ever need if we ever need to abandon Earth, things ever get too bad here, we can go to Mars. Do you realize how bad it would have to be on Earth for Mars to be a better option? Um, I mean, if, if it's that bad, then we might as well just direct our ships right into the sun and fly right into the sun and be done with it if things have gotten that bad. But all that said, uh, I still think, you know, I, I don't agree with the practical sort of justifications being given for this. But I think that's almost a cover story. What's the real reason that we want to do this? What's the real reason that, that Elon Musk wants to do it? It's it, You do it to do it because it's discovery. Because you're reaching out to the beyond, to the unknown. That's why you're doing it. Um, you know, that's, that's when, when, when we went through the age of discovery here on Earth. It's, it's not as though these, these efforts were always very, very you know, justifiable from a practical perspective. But the reason that you're doing it is because this is what humanity is supposed to do. I think if you give up on discovery, if we say, well, we've, we've discovered everything we want to discover and there's no point going anywhere else because it's too much hassle and it's dangerous. Once you say that, you've kind of given up as a species as an, and as a civilization. And we don't want to do that. All right. Time for the comment section. Who's bringing shopping cards back to the rightful place? Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. Okay, let's go to clip 12. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. I don't know what that is. That's not me, first of all. Get, get that off the screen. I don't want to see that. What is that? Who? What? What? what is? We're not going to talk about that. That's not, I don't know who that is. That's definitely not me. Uh, different glasses, for one thing. And I've got a better beard. And I have to say, you know, at least a slightly better physique than that. Give me some credit. What the hell? Why, why did I ever agree to do Why did, this was, was this my idea to do this video comment section thing? 
It was my idea. What did I think was going to happen? Just regret my whole life. I regret everything. All right. I just want to stop the show. I don't even want to go on with the show anymore. This is from Life Tutor. He says, I love how not subtle Matt is about being spoken to through his earpiece. <laughs> we just established. Sometimes mid-talking, he just goes, wait, what? Well, okay, what did you expect? This is obviously not a professional thing that we're doing here, okay? It's me. I'm just like, I'm sitting in front of a, of a bedroom sheet with my old studio imprinted on it. Um, Jonathan says, I agree with Matt on putting these people in prison, but I have to say, who are we talking about putting in prison? McKenna? I'm on board for that. I have to say, there are numerous cases where someone is put on, oh, <laughs> he's talking about sex offenders. No. Um, I have to say there are numerous cases where someone is put on the registry unjustly. That would be nice to have fixed if possible. Uh, yeah, well, no, that, that is true. Well, that, that's why I say with the sex offender registry, my point is that if somebody actually deserves to be on the registry, then that's someone who should just be in prison, you know, because the reason you're on the registry, the reason it exists is because these are people who are supposed to be threats to society, right? Um, and that's why they go on the registry. Now, if we're talking about, you know, you hear cases, I don't know how real these cases are, but you hear cases of uh, someone who's like, they had to pee and there was no bathroom available. So they go behind a dumpster in a back alley and uh, someone walks by and the next thing you know, they're on the sex offender registry, stuff like that. Or a case where, cases I have heard, maybe someone, you know, a high school senior is dating a, a someone in 10th grade and then the high school senior has a birthday and all of a sudden now is a sex offender. So cases like that, yeah, they don't belong in the registry, but that's just, that's, these are people who are, who, you know, don't belong in the registry, don't belong in prisons. That's a different category. If they actually belong on the registry, then, uh, then really they should be in prison and that should be it. Um, Eli says, isn't tucking what the psycho and silence of the lambs did? Yeah, that's actually exactly right. There's quite a lot that we see about gender ideology and the gender ideologues that that I think we'll often recall uh, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Sean says Zelensky is the new George Floyd. Well, that's not fair because Zelensky, I mean, George Floyd did nothing in his life at all uh, of value. I uh, did a lot of bad things and then he died. And the only reason why anyone remembers him is because of how he died. Uh, Zelensky is, you know, is a, is a, the leader of Ukraine. He's actually doing something. He is, he is trying to defend his country. So all that is, all that is, Good. It's good that he's doing that. Um, my issue is simply with, and if and if if you want to point out simply that Zelensky is uh, admirable for defending his country and not and not doing the unspeakably cowardly thing of abandoning his country and fleeing to some other country, uh, and if you want to point that out and say that you admire, it, fine. I mean, so do I. It's great. But when we go beyond that and turned him into a, some sort of literal savior figure. Now we've gone several steps too far. Um, Green Machine says, okay, if we're going to continue doing these agonizing video comments, they have to be short, like 10 to 15 seconds. I could not agree more. I think, in fact, we should go to zero seconds, shortest of all. Well, as you all know at this point, The Daily Wire does not stop creating awesome new content, and we're super excited about our latest docuseries, Fauci Unmasked. The show exposes the most successful failure failure in government history, Dr. Anthony Fauci. It's hosted by our very own Michael Knowles. He'll peel back the mask on Fauci's past 
and show the world's leading quote-unquote scientist for what he really is, which is a fraud. And worse than that, all that is exposed in this. The third and final episode dropped this morning. In it, Michael exposes the final layer of Fauci's unnatural rise to the authoritarian top. And it's seriously good. That is the episode, not Fauci. Check out this sneak peek. He's the highest paid employee in our federal government. And beginning in the spring of 2020, Dr. Fauci began to set national policy that affected the way that 330 million Americans lived their lives. For goodness sakes, I'm telling you, wear a mask, keep social distancing. There's nothing political about that. But who is Anthony Fauci? People who have conspiracy theories, those are people that don't particularly care for me. In this short series, we will do what the establishment media have refused to do. We will give you an unvarnished look at the career of the most powerful politician in America, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Don't you think it's time that you step down and let someone else who has a more effective message? (laughs) Actually, no. (laughs) The latest part of the three-part series is streaming now and is available exclusively at The Daily Wire. If you're not a member yet, head to dailywire.com slash subscribe to join today. The show is excellent, and since we're only adding more content every day, you don't want to miss it. Also, speaking of more content, the situation in Ukraine is dire, which is why we're recording a special episode of Morning Wire to be released this Sunday with our investigative reporter, Cassie, who's uh, joining John in Georgia to discuss her recent trip to cover the situation in Ukraine. So make sure you tune in morning, uh, to Morning Wire this Sunday, because not only is it an incredibly important episode, it's the only daily podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime to bring you the news you need to know, We need your help to keep the facts trending towards number one. So subscribe and start listening now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. Finally, it is once again time to announce the latest installment of the Matt Walsh patch program. This is March's path, which is... Do I have a patch program? Oh, I do, yeah. Um, This is the, the patch for March. Godspeed, it's officially arrived. And in case you've forgotten, like perhaps I have... Uh, which I know you surely have not. <laughs> I am uh, releasing a very limited edition patch once a month for you to wear on your shirt, backpack, skin, or wherever you feel best demonstrates your allegiance to the Sweet Baby King. I'm really good at ads. Can we just all admit that? How good I am at this? Remember, these merit badges are limited edition. Last month's patch sold out. So don't miss your chance to be part of history. Go to dailywire.com shop today. How could you not go after that sales pitch? Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, Pixar's latest film, Turning Red, has generated some pushback from parents who say that the story, which is apparently some kind of weird metaphor for puberty, isn't appropriate for young children. Also, as we've previously discussed, some parents say that uh, the protagonist's child is bratty and disrespectful and rude. And this behavior you know, is, is, uh, encouraged, is not discouraged by the film, but is encouraged. And there are elements of wokeness sprinkled throughout. Now, this, again, is is what I've heard from parents. I haven't seen the movie for myself, and neither have my kids, and it will stay that way. I'm quite happy to take their word for it. Now, I usually believe in investigating issues for yourself before drawing conclusions, but when the issue is whether this stupid Disney film is merely stupid or stupid and also malignant, um, I feel no need to look closer. I'd rather just save the brain cells for something a little bit more important. But as we've discovered... In our society, um, full of overgrown children stuck in perpetual adolescence, it's very offensive to have a critical opinion about a piece of entertainment, especially Disney entertainment. For many people, especially in my generation, Disney and Disney branded products are a crucial part of their identity because they have no real identity. 
And then you add to this the fact that the film stars an Asian cartoon character, a cartoon character of Asian descent, CCAD, and now it's, it's all the more offensive to criticize it. That's what brings us to the latest fake racism contro- controversy. This is from NBC. It says, quote, Turning Red cast members spoke up in support of the new Pixar film and its universality following a controversial review for the animated movie that was published by Cinema Blend. The review was pulled offline after being called sexist, racist, and more by members of the press. Cinema Blend managing director Sean O'Connell wrote the review, saying that the film's appeal was limited because it's set in the Asian community of Toronto. Quote, I recognize the humor in the film, but connected with none of it. By rooting Turning Red very specifically in the Asian community of Toronto, the film legitimately feels like it was made for director Domi Shi's friends and immediate family members, O'Connell wrote in the since-polled review, which is fine but also a tad limiting in its scope. O'Connell doubled down on his opinion of the film in a since-deleted tweet that accompanied his review. The Post read, quote, Some Pixar films are made for universal audiences. Turning Red is not. The target audience for this one feels very specific and very narrow. If you're in it, this might work very well for you. I am not in it. This was exhausting. Now, from here, we have the whole routine where the media, people on the left, cast members, people in Hollywood, etc., react with horror that some white man dared to not enjoy a cartoon about an Asian kid. Probably don't need to go through all those examples. Uh, You've heard this tune many times before. No need need for me to hum it for you now. But we should note a couple of things about O'Connell's opinion. First, it's his opinion, right? He's paid to give his opinion on movies. That's his job. In a sane world, that would be enough. No need to say anything further. There are no wrong opinions about a movie. Well, that's not true. There there are wrong opinions. Like if you like Star Wars, that's a wrong opinion. There are a lot of wrong opinions. But either way, it's your job to give your opinion if you're a movie critic. But we don't live in a sane world. So that brings us to the second point. O'Connell's point essentially was that he wasn't represented by the film. He didn't connect with it. It didn't speak to his lived experience which is to be expected given that he's a white man in America writing film reviews and the movie is about an Asian girl in Toronto having her first period. Now, these days, of course, there's no reason why a white man can't also be a menstruating Asian girl if that's how he identifies. But regardless, this comment about lacking connection with the film is an extremely common criticism of movies. This is the whole reason why every movie now has to include a representative from every identity group and sexuality so that every viewer can feel represented by the story. Given this obsession with representation, why can't O'Connell make a similar comment about this movie? Now, that's a rhetorical question, of course. I, I know the reason. He's a white man, and white men are not entitled to have the kinds of opinions that other identity groups are allowed to have. Now, I would go on defending O'Connell from the absurd racism charge, but unfortunately, he's made that impossible. After the publication pulled the review, they, they actually did pull a review because some readers didn't agree with it. This is a movie review site, and somebody wrote a movie review, and the readers didn't didn't agree with it, and so they took it down. But after that, O'Connell went on Twitter and did exactly what you already knew he would do. He tweeted, I'm genuinely sorry for my turning red review. Thank you to everyone who has reached out with criticism, no matter how harsh. It's clear that I didn't engage nearly enough with the movie, nor did I explain my point of view well at all. I really appreciate your feedback. There it is. The grovel, the submission, the surrender, the apology. Think about the phrasing, too. It's clear that I didn't engage enough with the movie. He's apologizing for not feeling engaged with a film. He's not just apologizing for how he expressed himself. That would be bad enough. He's apologizing for the actual opinion that he formed about the movie. He's saying, I'm sorry for thinking these thoughts about a cartoon. He's apologizing for not liking it more. 
It's a Pixar cartoon about a teenage girl going through puberty. And O'Connell now admits that it's his moral obligation to connect with the story somehow and enjoy it somehow. He's admitted guilt. What's he guilty of exactly? Who knows? But he's admitted it. And he's confessed to whatever racism he's been accused of. You know, there's a scene at the end of a Mystic River where Sean Penn's character has a gun to the head of Tim Robbins' character. Um, he's trying to get Robbins to admit that he killed uh, Penn, his daughter, Penn's daughter. Uh, now, Robbins didn't actually kill the daughter. He was innocent. But Penn's character told him that he'd be allowed to live if he simply admitted to his crime. And finally, Robbins breaks down and says, yeah, I did it. I did it. And then Pat Penn st- proceeds to stab him to death on the spot and dump his body in the river. Now, a similar scene plays out with cancel culture over and over and over again. The canceled person with a, with a metaphorical gun to the head thinks that he can escape the wrath of the mob by admitting to a crime he didn't commit. The mob puts the gun to the head and says, admit what you did. Admit what you did. And then he admits it, and he's gutted anyway and dumped in the river. Now, he was probably going to die either way. Now he dies a guilty man. Now he dies without his dignity. There's no benefit to apologizing and accepting the racist label. The apology isn't even self-serving. It's self-destructive. Yet that won't stop these people, so overwhelmed by their cowardly fear, fear from continuing to make this fatal error again and again and again. So good riddance. You know, I can't help these people even if I wanted to. Sean O'Connell is not a racist, but he admitted to it and apologized, so I guess he is. And he had the right opinion about this dumb Disney cartoon, but he apologized for that too, so I guess it was the wrong opinion. He bowed to the mob. And so today, he is the one who is sadly canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thank God. Talk to you on Monday. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Vodowski. Our associate producer is McKenna Waters. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. And hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2022. Hey, everybody, this is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Claven Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew Claven Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Claven. Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com.